Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. We are going to continue through our series of a sermon on the Mount this morning. But before we do, I want to quickly highlight a few things that are uh, happening in the next couple of weeks or even this summer. Um, some, some rhythms that we're going to be starting as a church in the next couple of weeks. Um, in two weeks... We're going to be rerouting all of our community groups, our midweek community groups, to our Summer Nights series that's going to be starting Wednesday, June 14th, right here at the water table. Say June 14th. So Wednesday, June 14th, right here, uh, we're going to be meeting together every other week. So every other week through the end of August, we're going to be meeting and... uh, Even if you haven't been able to plug into community groups, this is a great opportunity to connect, and it's a great way to uh, grow as a disciple um, and to learn how to make disciples who make disciples. It's what we're going to really focus on over the summer, and so we're going to be honing deeper on d- deeper in on the heart of God through the gospel, and we're going to be walking through a book called Essential Christianity. Um, it's a fantastic book that really captures the heart of what it is to even be a Christian, what it is about, what the whole thing is about. It's going to supplement also our summer preaching series as we go through uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're also uh, going to be offering you an opportunity to walk through. We're going to give a reading plan in the next week or so here. We're going to have a reading plan for you that goes through the Gospels through the end of the summer. So a 90-day reading plan through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So you can daily be soaking in the Word of God. Um, that, that matters, I think, for all of us. I think that it will allow us to rediscover who God is, establish these rhythms of grace that posture ourselves before the presence of God. Um, I, so again, we're going to have the preaching series, Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at what matters most in the gospel. So whether you're a seasoned Christian or whether you're a new believer, this is going to be really helpful, I believe, to you in your walk as a disciple who makes disciples. And maybe you're not a believer yet. Maybe you're just trying to figure out what this whole thing is about. Again, this series, the Summer Night series, is going to be for you. And so, uh, again, we're going to be relaunching our community groups, don't worry, in September. We're going to relaunch them in September, Um, but for the summer, again, we're going to be having food, fun, Holy Spirit is going to be great, weather permitting, we may even do it outside in the courtyard, right by the water, so I'm excited about that. Uh, You can sign up for the Summer Nights series um, using your QR code, and that way we'll be able to provide you with a book uh, so that you can have that book, but hear me. If you decide to come and you're like, man, I missed the first three weeks of this thing. I don't have a book. Don't worry. We're going to be recapping it with a brief recap every single chapter. We're going to recap it so that you can enter into the discussion right where you are and you can also bring a friend. So that's all right. We'll, you'll be able to engage in that um, in the midst of it all. So uh, again, we are going to be also just soaking up all these different areas of of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ this summer. And so it's going to be a great summer. I'm looking forward to it. You looking forward to it? I am. So um, let's, speaking of the heart of God, let's dive back into our series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is God Almighty in the flesh preaching a sermon, right? Best sermon ever. 103 verses, three chapters long. It's amazing, um, but we've broken it up into separate sections here, and, and we're walking through it this morning, and so, uh, or this summer, and this morning, we have come to uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 26. Now, as you heard earlier, kind of heavy, right? Like, this is the beauty of walking through verse by verse through passages. Um, it's both the beauty and it's kind of like, really, I don't know if I even want to preach that right now, right? He's talking about anger. And it's, it's an area that I think is convicting to all of us on some level or another. And so uh, be prepared. If you are poor in spirit, you will likely be convicted this morning. I hope and pray that you kind of, not, not kind of are, that you are, because that is what the Spirit does to his children whom he loves. And so... We're going to dive into this passage here, um, but it is extremely important that we read this passage in context. 
And so again, if you just read this passage as a standalone verse, you're going to completely misinterpret what Jesus is saying, and you're going to miss the gospel entirely here. Like remember, when Jesus preached this sermon, he preached all 103 verses of this at one time, in one sitting. He goes, he sits down. That's probably why he sat down, because he's like, you got to settle in. This is going to be the long haul, right? Like if I'm up here, I'm standing. If I sit down, get comfortable, because we're going to be here for a while, right? So this is what he does. He comes in and, and, and he just throws down 103 verses, the best sermon ever, in one sitting. We, again, are going to be taking an entire summer to walk through this. So it is extremely important to remember the context of every one of these sections in order to understand what he is saying. Because if you just read it as little snippets in and of themselves, you are going to overlay your opinion onto it and misinterpret it. Okay? You'll project your own presumptions onto what he's saying. But in this passage... Jesus is going to talk about anger. And, and, and he's going to talk about uh, the topic, this topic of anger, the way that he approaches it is just as important as what he says about it. Okay? Again, Sermon on the Mount is not simply a sermon about anger. It's a sermon about our relationship with God at a heart level. And so Jesus is about to call out the ways that people have missed the point entirely. And he's going to do that by reinterpreting what we have misinterpreted, what people have misinterpreted about the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. That's another way of saying the Old Testament. So many people, especially in his day and in ours, completely miss the point even of the Old Testament, and they do so for the sake of their own self-righteousness. So as a roadmap for the rest of our time, I've got two points and a question for you, okay? Two points and a question. Number one, God's law has always been about God's love. Number two, when life squeezes you, what comes out of you is just a symptom of what's been in you all along. Number three, what are you angry about? What are you angry about? Some of you are like, I'm not angry. Just wait till I'm finished with the sermon. So here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else this morning, this is what I want you to get. Jesus fulfills God's law so that you can be filled with God's love. Jesus fulfills God's law so that you can be filled with God's love. Guys, if you miss the love of God, if you miss the love of God, you're going to totally misinterpret the law of God and the word of God altogether. Okay? But Jesus himself is both the perfect presentation of God's word. He is God's word in the flesh. He is both the perfect presentation of it and demonstration of it. And because he is the total, in himself even, the total fulfillment of God's law. Look at Matthew verse five, uh, sorry, chapter 5, verse 17. Let's dive in here. It says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, if it seems like Jesus is responding to something here, it's because he is. All right? People tend to be reactive and tend to only hear what they fear. And Jesus has just made some extremely radical statements that would have rattled a very performance-oriented society. That's the context in which he's speaking. You see, people had elevated the self-righteous piety of the religious rulers of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, and that had become the pinnacle goal of their religion. That's the context that he's speaking into here. So their perception of holiness is what gave them power and status with the people. And then Jesus comes along and he starts talking about being poor in spirit, which means needy, spiritually needy like a child. And so you've got these sort of elitists walking around 
And, and, and these religious rulers, these elites, they were not poor in spirit at all. So in defense of themselves, which is the go-to move for the self-centered, right? They hear their fear that Jesus is saying the word of God doesn't matter anymore. And the Old Testament is outdated and doesn't apply. That's what they hear. That's what they think he's saying because they hear their fear. But that's not at all what Jesus is saying. And he, knowing their thoughts, he, he goes there and he makes it clear here that it does matter. Right? We don't react to one thing and run way over here and then react to those people that have polarized on that direction and run way over here. That's not what we do. What do we do? We look at Jesus. Jesus, what do you say? Jesus, how do you interpret the scriptures? Jesus, what is the gospel? Jesus says, well, I am the gospel. And it's like, okay, great. Let's follow him. And so this is what he does. He says that it does matter. And they are the ones who have actually relaxed what it's saying, that they've minimized it by only applying it to external behavior. Jesus says, it's not just about what you do. It's about why you do it. He traces it right to the heart, because you know what? God is about your heart. Don't forget that the prerequisite for receiving the blessing of God's grace right out of the gate in the Sermon on the Mount is being poor in spirit, spiritually needy. And so Jesus is simply knocking the self-righteous legs out from under all those who think they can measure up in their own strength. This is both comforting and convicting. Because as you hear these things, you're going to go, man, I'm falling short if you're poor in spirit. And then you realize, oh, That's how I need to view this whole thing in order to be blessed. And so the the call here is not to beat yourself up for not having 100% pure motives all the time. That's not what this is. The call here is to recognize your need for a Savior. So remember, Jesus opened his sermon, again, characterizing the blessed life as the life who recognizes their deep need for the Lord, hungers and thirsts for him, and lives in worshipful response to the secure love and the lavish grace that now flows through them as they hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, you will be satisfied. So this is what Christianity is about, but it's not what that sort of legalistic religion is about. They were fully focused on duty and rules and behavior. Their motivation had become either fear of failure or the pride of achievement, but not love. And this isn't just religion. This is secular society also. This is a society that has fallen out of love or fallen from intimacy, fallen from grace with God is a society that operates on that pride-shame spectrum. It's the only thing that motivates them. It's either the pride of achievement or the fear of failure. That's how the world operates, whether it's on this extreme or the other. And Jesus is now talking about receiving a new identity as sons and daughters. And so as we said before, again, the blessed life that Jesus describes is not a life blessed by a particular circumstance or personal success. It's a life blessed with intimate relationship with God. Like when the creator of the universe delights in you and loves you as his precious child, and you receive that, not because of anything you've done, but because of what's been done for you, changes everything. Changes everything. If he is for you, who can be against you? That's a reality. It's not my opinion, that's scripture. So even the worst scenario then becomes a catalyst for your good, for your trust. It even becomes a blessing. And so this life is a journey, guys. It's a journey even through a wilderness, learning to trust him as beloved children of a good, good father. Jesus has come to deliver us from slavery and graft us into his own sonship with God the Father. And so the difference, as we've said before, between a son and a slave is love. The slave has to earn his acceptance. The son lives in response to his acceptance. If the slave screws up, he's got to earn his way back. If the son screws up, he simply needs to come back. 
That's the kind of relationship Jesus provides. This is what he's reminding us of. So this is the blessing that he's come to bestow to all who are poor in spirit and hungry enough to receive it. But he's speaking again to a people who have lived for the rules, not the relationship. He's speaking to a people whose hearts are far from God, even though their mouths may say otherwise. He's also, I think, speaking to a people whose mouths may say, I'm still far from God. And the reason they even reject him most of the time is because they realize I either don't want to measure up or i realizing I can't measure up. And so I've just reacted and run a different direction. And so the truth is, though, when your heart has been so jacked up by that pride-shame spectrum, it's hard to even know what it's like to be human. Like when you've lived on that merry-go-round your whole life in this world, it's hard to even know what, it's, what you were created for. And you were created for worship as sons and daughters. That's what you're created for. But, but it, how do you get back to that? You guys remember the movie Seabiscuit? Remember this? It's an old movie, I think it came out in 2003. It was there even a remake of something before that? But it's a movie based on a true story of a racehorse named Seabiscuit um, and his jockey named Red Pollard during the Great Depression. Seabiscuit was much smaller than all the other impressive thoroughbred horses. He was uh, young. When he was young, he was used as a lead pony uh, to train the, the bigger horses that had the greater potential to win the races, right? And so the, in the process, though, he was just trained to lose, running around in these circles. He was kicked around from one owner to another. He was neglected, abused, and he became a very angry horse in this movie. They depict him this way. And for some reason, though, an old trainer, this old trainer named Tom, he, he takes a vested interest in this horse, Seabiscuit. And on this first training day, as Seabiscuit's running wildly around the track, the owner says, uh, the, the owner that the trainer is working for, looks to the trainer and says, he seems pretty fast. And the trainer then, Tom says, yeah, in every direction. He's so beat up, it's hard to tell what he's like. I just can't help feeling they got him so screwed up running around in a circle that he's forgotten what he was born to do. He just needs to learn how to be a horse again. This, guys, is our circumstance. This is why Jesus came. Like, he didn't just come to purchase us from our slavery to sin through the cross and then leave us alone. That's not it. He also, he did do that, yes, but he also came to show us what it means to be human. To show you what it means to be sons and daughters, not slaves to sin. And he sent a trainer, a counselor, an advocate, an unconditional advocate in the Holy Spirit to guide and convict and transform from the inside out to lead us into this abundant life that he's provided in Christ. Jesus came to fulfill all that the law is actually pointing to, which is the love of God. He came to interpret what it's all truly talking about. Even with his own life, he shows us what it means to be truly human. Even though he is fully human and fully God, he shows us what it's like. He shows us what abundant life is all about. And what we find is that it's all about relationship with him. So God has become human, and he's speaking to humanity about what it means to be truly and abundantly human. Again, the point wasn't that Jesus followed all the rules for us so we don't have to anymore. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's not the message of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to relax the rules. He didn't come to say none of the Old Testament laws matter anymore. Not at all. Jesus doesn't nullify the Old Testament. He brings clarity to it. And he does it in himself and in the way he loves and in the way that he lives. He is the word of God in the flesh. He's the epitome, even the very manifestation of what the law has always been pointing us to. 
And what has it been pointing us to? What's the Old Testament pointing everybody to? Jesus. And what is Jesus pointing us to? Love the Father. Jesus shows us what it's all about and exposes how we've turned the law of love into a law of self-righteous achievement apart from the love of God. So point number one, God's law has always been about God's love. In Matthew 22, Jesus asked what the greatest commandment is, or Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is by someone who's actually trying to test and trap him. And, and Jesus just takes it as an opportunity to show how far these people have missed the mark. And he says this in verse 37, Matthew 22, verse 37. He says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophet. In other words, the entire Old Testament is about loving God and loving each other. It's why he structured the Beatitudes the way that he did. The first 12 verses that we walked through are structured with that horizontal relationship with each other flowing directly out of our vertical relationship with God. And so Jesus even goes so far as to set a new standard for his new covenant people. That would be you. That would be me. He gives us a new standard. You ready for it? John 13 verse 34. This is what Jesus says. A new commandment. And this thing wraps up all the others, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Hello. You also are to love one another. Now look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's our testimony. That's the witness. So guys, the only way that that's possible, if you're feeling a little poor in spirit on that one, you should, because <laughs> it's like, I'm not Jesus. You're not Jesus. I've missed the mark continually on this because I'm not Jesus. However, how is it even, how is this even a thing? The only way that that's possible is if his love is coursing through you in the Holy Spirit. He desires to love others through you. This is what sets you apart from everyone else. This is what we have access to. Now you might say, again, that, that seems impossible, but this is why we must be poor in spirit and let him cover where our sins miss the mark, right? We'll talk about this later. Love for a brotherhood covers a multitude of sins. Now listen, guys, your flesh and your enemy want nothing more than for you to think that you've lived up to God's law without God's presence or his love that you can do it in your own strength. You have an enemy who wants you to believe that you can do this without him. There's a constant pull on our hearts to idolize rules over God himself and then demonize them, all of those things, when you fall short. It's called resentment. It's called bitterness. But for those who are caught in that crucible of trying to prove yourself to yourself and to the world and even to God, the language Jesus was using would have triggered a fierce reaction, and then that, and, which is exactly what happened. And they accused Jesus of relaxing God's commandments and his word. But again, knowing his audience, Jesus makes it clear that that's not what he's doing. Verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of, these, the, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus doesn't lower the bar here. Again, he raises it. In fact, he's about to show that all they... All of them have been missing the point if they're trying to do it the way the scribes and the Pharisees have. Because it's not just about behavior. It's about the heart motive behind the behavior. It's also about the why 
behind the what. It's, it's not just about how well you perform. It's about why you're performing and obeying in the first place. That matters. Again, if you're not feeling poor in spirit after listening to this Sermon on the Mount, like, like if you're not feeling spiritually needy when you read through this stuff, you ain't paying attention. Or you've got a much higher view of yourself than you probably should. Right? And now Jesus begins to reinterpret those relaxed external interpretations of the law. Matthew 21, uh, Matthew 5, verse 21, he says this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus here quotes the God-given law forbidding murder. And most people think, you know, I haven't murdered anyone. I'm good. Right? That would be relaxing the law. You see, that? you see this? That's relaxing law. I haven't murdered anybody. Jesus brings clarity and fulfillment through the spirit of the law. Not just the letter. The spirit. Not by relaxing it, but by tracing it to its heart level depth. And so he calls attention to the heart posture behind murder, which doesn't begin the moment you kill someone or murder someone. It began the moment you began to coddle anger in your heart. Anger is the root of murder, and God sees to the root of the heart. And so Jesus is calling attention to the heart level nature of the kingdom of heaven. And he goes further even than that here. He, he talks about people who insult their brothers and then he uses two examples of people who are holding others in contempt. The Greek here literally reads, whoever says to his brother, Raka, will be liable to the council and whoever says, More, which is the word here, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now the word Raka was a word used to insult someone's intelligence, labeling them as idiots or morons. And when we do that often, it makes us feel better about ourselves. It's a pressing down in order to lift ourselves up. That's that pride-shame thing, right? And then more, a word that was used to insult someone's character or integrity, same thing. I'm so integritous. I'm a highly, my character is so high compared to them. Both are hateful labels that well up from a heart with the intent to destroy. Jesus is setting a new culture. He's setting a new value system here. He's getting to the heart of this. This kind of language actually becomes normal in a culture that's motivated by pride and shame. Whether it's religious or worldly, it doesn't matter. When you're chasing the pride of achievement or running from the fear of shame, you become highly self-centered and it breeds this kind of critical, judgmental heart that and this kind of rhetoric just flows freely from that. Anger and derision flow much easily through, or much more easily through self-centeredness than love and forgiveness do. It's easy to write Jesus off here, right? It's easy to, to look at this and just say, ah, he's being hyperbolic. But is he? He's making it clear that when these are the heart motives and, and when they go unchecked, it even becomes normal in an individual and in a society. And it has murderous ramifications when that stuff goes unchecked. Throughout history even, look at this. You, can see, you see this play itself out in society. Like this kind of language has been used to deem human life as less valuable or worth less. Think about it in order to justify mass murder even, genocide, right? Entire ethnicities, well, they don't really offer much to society. If you read any of the, the stuff about like what, what Joseph Goebbels was writing in the Nazi party, that was their whole thing. They're not offering much to society. They're not as intelligent. Therefore, worth less. Gas chamber. Right? How about abortion? Same concept. Worth 
less, less valuable, a human life. But hear this, guys. God doesn't place value on human life because of that life's ability to perform. The values of his kingdom are different. And he's, he, he's set his church apart from the ways of this world. Like, like, we don't just value and love the child with the high IQ and potential for great worldly success. That's not what triggers our value system. We value and love the child with Down syndrome just as much. Amen? This is the kingdom. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of the kingdom of heaven. Why? Image bearer. Imago Dei. That's what that means. An image bearer of God. So Jesus is issuing a warning here to not let it even get a foothold in your life. So the scribes and Pharisees love to put laws around laws, right? Like they they had a, a list of extra laws that they'd come up with themselves to keep people from breaking God's laws. They were, again, they were man made rules and they were more often than not, designed to make them seem more holy than the people around them. But again, God looks at the heart. They, they had rules like you can't walk more than a thousand yards on the Sabbath. Right? That's not actually in the Bible. Or, or this is what they did because, so that they wouldn't uh, screw up the observance of, keeping, of resting on the Sabbath day, right? Of keeping it holy. Or, or, or you couldn't write more than one word, right? Because if you walked a thousand and one yards, or if you wrote two words, that meant you weren't resting, <laughs> right? And so it, it's also interesting. Jesus broke these kinds of rules on the regular, intentionally. One commentary put it like this. I said, if the scribes were lawyers, Jesus was a cardiologist. <laughs> like he knew, affirmed, and obeyed Scripture's legal norms, but focused on the heart and its motives. A man is not righteous because he does not murder. He's righteous because he neither murders nor wishes to do so, and because he risks, he resists those thoughts. Matthew 23, verse 24 through 26. Jesus says this. He says, You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Get that image. You blind guides, you straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, which the word hypocrite means actor. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Now, how do you do that? It requires the Holy Spirit, which is what Jesus provides through the cross and resurrection. So, So what he's saying here is you've missed the point. They're straining out a gnat. They're doing all the pious-looking things, but then swallowing the camels of bitterness, of pride, of resentment. The way of Jesus is not merciless. It is not malicious. Those things were how they were operating. And yet Jesus calls us all to come to grips with what's in our hearts before it gets out of hand. That means catching it at a heart level and then taking it to the Lord. So Jesus is setting up a new kingdom here on earth. Like he's describing values that don't fit that dog-eat-dog kind of world, right? The strong will survive. That doesn't work here. He's got a different set of values. I mean, this, this honestly, look, especially if you're in the military, this is going to sound weak. This stuff sounds weak to this kind of world. And yet nothing could be stronger or more secure because it removes all the barriers to true strength that's only found in relationship with him, identity in him. So this is a call to make peace with each other, to get out in front of the contempt and to not let anger or bitterness get a foothold, which is easier said than done, especially if it's already gotten in the door a little bit, right? So verse 23, look at this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. So this is kind of 
the, the Old Testament language even of coming into the presence of God in prayer, right? In worship. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift to the Lord. So, so I want you to notice something here. He's using family language. It's intentional. He's saying, if you have the same father, if this is your brother, that means you have the same father, right? Your father's desire for you above all is unity. It's love. It's mercy. Not quarreling, not fighting, not division. This doesn't make sense to an insecure world that does not know the secure love and the grace of Christ. Again, Jesus is setting up a new kingdom culture here. It's, it's part of what sets us apart in a backbiting world. But it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to do. Romans 12, verse 17 says this, verse 17 and 18. It says, repay no one evil for evil. This is a theme that is in the Sermon on the Mount here. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, if possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's the kind of sacrifice and offering God requires. That's what a good father wants of his children, right? Like if my children are fighting and quarreling and, and just like constantly at each other's throat and then my son comes over and is like, you know, can I have a present or something? Or like he wants to do something and he's like, look what I made for you. And I'm like, go be nice to your sister, <laughs> right? Like reconcile with her. She's just crying in the corner <laughs> because of something he's done. It's going to affect his prayers. You see that? Our prayers to our Father. And so yes, often though, so, so this is the kind of offering that God asks of us. And yes, often this does require willing sacrifice. Often, this means laying down your perceived right to be right. Don't look at your spouse right now. Right? If you're in here, or you're even thinking of your spouse or that other person, I want you to hear this. I'm speaking to you. This is speaking to the individual right now, okay? Some of you are willing to take a bullet for your wife, but you're not willing to die to yourself in the midst of that argument. Think about that. But you believe you're right and you're ready to spiritually kill for what you believe. And again, you might even be right. But if you're shaming and domineering, you're not righteous. And if that didn't mess you up, this probably will. Notice Jesus does not say here, guys, this is hard. Ooh, this is hard. You here? Are you gonna? You, you ready for this? Anybody gonna come back next week? I don't know. We'll see. Jesus does not say here if you remember that you have something against your brother. He says. Now he does say that in the Gospel of Mark. Okay, he does say if you have something, if you remember, if you bring your gift and you remember that you have something against your brother, go to him. But that's not what he says here. He says that in a different Gospel, but. It, so that's true, that's good. But here, he says, if you're offering something to the Lord and you remember that your brother has something against you. That's tough. Go to him. Guys, Jesus continues to step this thing up. Like verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. So he uses examples. Notice he doesn't say unless he's wrong and you're right. He doesn't give that caveat. Guys, this is an audacious call to reconciliation within the family of God. But listen to me. It requires that you go to one another. It requires that. The legalist looks to the law or scripture for a reason not to reconcile. They only look to leverage the law to justify their own position or isolation. But Jesus is making it clear that they have missed the point even of the law itself. Jesus makes it clear that God's law has always been about love. 
And he raises the bar here. It requires that you love one another and not live offended. It means laying down your offense. Jesus is less concerned with who's in the right and who's in the wrong and more concerned with the division itself. So, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably. Go to your brother, your sister, reconcile. Go to, your, go to them, not to their friends, not to your friends to talk about it. That's called gossip, and it normally just feeds a false narrative of slander. Go to them. 1 Peter 4.8 says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. New culture. It's a new culture. Now that rattles every ounce of pride in a heart that tends to be self-centered, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Anybody pour in spirit in here? Am I the only one? Like that, that's like, ooh, I don't know. But, uh, but they did the, and the, hmm. Lay aside anger and wrath and come to terms quickly, even with the accuser who is falsely accusing you. Back to verse 25. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, in case you haven't noticed here, now he's suddenly, he's, he's not just talking about earthly courts here. He's talking about even, I've heard it said that anger and bitterness, it's, it's like the only thing that destroys the vessel from within. Right? And so unity matters to Jesus and his call is to do what you can to make peace. But again, in this world, that's not always possible. Reconciliation requires both parties' willingness to reconcile. Okay? That's important. And that doesn't mean that you live your life bound by the offenses of other people. In fact, in Matthew 10, Jesus sent his disciples ahead of him, and he tells them to go to these houses and to offer peace to each house. And if the peace was returned to them, then great. But if the peace, I'm sorry, if the peace was yeah, if that peace was returned to them, in other words, that peace is rejected, then he says, let the peace that you've offered return to you. And then he says, kick the dust off of your feet and move on. Titus 3 even tells us there's a time to just let some people go. But the attempt for reconciliation does matter. So if your peace is rejected, you can then let the peace that you've offered returned, return to you. This is the way of the kingdom. But if you've been hurt, if you've truly experienced injustice, then you're probably thinking right now, you don't know what they did to me. You may even have somebody in mind right now, then you're like, man, they don't deserve mercy. They don't even deserve peace. Just thinking about that person might even be making you angry right now. Might be a parent, might be a spouse, might be a former friend, might be parents that you cut off or, or, or an ex-wife or an ex-husband, maybe friends from a long time ago, maybe a, a former coach or boss or whatever it is. Some of you have also experienced very real evil and you've been left with very real trauma. I'm not minimizing any of that. And you need to hear, right? You need to hear that nobody is more upset about that than God. You may have even attempted reconciliation and that peace was returned to you. It may also be that that relationship is a dangerous relationship that requires very real boundaries. Okay? Again, though, first of all, you need to know that God is just. And He is good. Nobody is more angered at that injustice that happened to you than he is. He is a good father and he is a protective father. Okay? And he promises to repay. That's a thing. Which means you don't have to. That's what that means. You don't have to. It means that justice belongs to him and you can let it go. See, God's vengeance comes in the form of eternal wrath. You can't even comprehend it. 
right? And, and, and his wrath for that sin will be poured out. But it'll be poured out in one of two ways, okay? The first way will either be on that person's soul for eternity. That's real. The second way, it'll either be that or it'll be poured out upon Jesus who willingly took that person's place on the cross as well. This is heavy. You guys ready? The question is, which do you desire for that person you're angry with? Do you desire that they be spared by the grace of God as you have been or punished for eternity? Because the answer to that question is like a litmus test for whether or not you're really grasping what God has done for you. Like again, this is all about relationship with the Father because of what Jesus has done, Jesus has done for us. Like in a few weeks, Jesus is, we're going to look at how Jesus teaches us how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, verse 12, he, he teaches us to pray like this. Matthew 6, 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Which then flows into the next prayer, verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because you see, if you withhold forgiveness, you posture yourself in the presence of temptation and the snare of bitterness and evil. Verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also, excuse me, forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Matthew 5, 7, again, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Remember, there's no amount of offense levied at you that's greater than the offense that's been levied at God. And yet, and yet, he perfectly demonstrates this principle of offering forgiveness and seeking reconciliation perfectly in himself, in Christ. Like, think about this. He demonstrates it by offering forgiveness and seeking reconciliation with you. Like, we accused him of not being good. Even in our wretched, offensive sin, we falsely blamed God of not being good. And yet, he came to us he, he laid down his own life. He took what we deserved and he offers us forgiveness and reconciliation. Guys, this is the gospel. God became a man and lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserved to die and he conquered death in the grave, the barrier between us and the Father. He conquered through the resurrection and he, provide, he provided eternal life and not just an eternal life one day when we die. That's not when it starts. It starts the moment we place our faith and hope in what Christ has done for us and then he now fills us with his presence, with his Holy Spirit and he transforms us from the inside side out. That is total reconciliation. It's offered to everyone, but hear this. Reconciliation, God has offered it. He's offered forgiveness to everyone, but only some will receive it and be reconciled. Only those who recognize their sin, that they are poor in spirit, and that they need to turn and return towards Him as Savior and Lord. Confession and repentance and belief. That is what's required. Jesus offers forgiveness to everyone, but not everyone will receive His forgiveness. It must come through confession, repentance, and sin. And so when you receive Him, you receive His Spirit. And it begins to transform you from the inside out. And then you begin to extend that grace to others around you. That's what we offer. This is how we operate. But it all requires being poor in spirit. Again, the self-righteous heart has no desire for reconciliation, just a desire to justify their own position. They've got to go before God and say, search me and know me, O God. See if there's any evil way within me and lead me on the path of everlasting life so that I can follow you and operate as you have called me to do. Which leads me to the second point. When life squeezes you, what comes out of you is just a symptom of what has been in you all along. And we're going to move right through this. Remember that movie Seabiscuit again? The, the trainer, Tom, and the owner, Mr. Howard, uh, there's a scene in it um, where it, they decide to not just invest in this uh, 
angry horse, but also in this angry jockey named Red Pollard. Okay, and uh, so it was the Great Depression, and 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 Red Pollard was angry. He had the same kind of like neglect, similar to the horse. There's kind of a, a congruence between Red, the jockey, and this horse. This, the horse was too small, and the jockey was too big, and both had been abused and neglected, and both were filled with a lot of anger. And there's a scene depicting one of the earliest races, and Tom gives Red the strategy to win. He says this: says, "Stay on the flank of the gray horse who is favored to win. Put your nose right on the haunches of that horse." And no matter what, don't break for the finish line until that horse breaks. Just stay with him, stick close, and then when he breaks, let Seabiscuit cut loose and you'll win. That was his strategy, right? And so the gates open, and that's just exactly what Red does. But another horse then cuts him off, and it almost runs him into the rail. And then Red snaps, right? He just loses it. And he leaves the flank of the gray horse, and he chases this other horse down to try and run him into the rail. And then while he's focusing on his own vengeance, the gray horse then makes his move and wins the race. And he's just stuck there trying to run this horse into the rail while all the other horses just pass him. Missed the point entirely. After the race, Tom and Mr. Howard, the owner, they, they, the trainer and the owner, they ask Red, like, well, what, are you, what were you thinking? And this is what he says. It's a powerful scene. He says, he fouled me. He, he fouled me. What am I supposed to do? Let him get away with that? And the trainer says, well, yeah, when he's 40 to 1. And Red says, but he almost put me in the rail. He fouled me, Tom. What am I supposed to do? He cut me off. He fouled me. And the owner is sitting there calmly and just looks at him and says, son, what are you so mad at? Like, how many times... Do we get fouled and it rattles something inside us that takes our attention off the only thing that matters? Like you can spend your entire life angry at the world and chasing down your fouls, or you can follow Jesus into abundant life and victory. That's easier said than done. It's a great sermon point, but uh, emotions are emotions. How do you deal with this? How, how do we navigate this? Again, when those things come out, you can't just ignore them because they're a symptom of what's going on in your heart. And God wants you to deal with that. Not be identified by that, but to deal with it. Augustine once put it like this, our deepest emotions often function like smoke from a fire that can show us what's going on in our hearts. So we tend to think of our own anger like a balloon ready to pop, right? Sometimes we, 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 like things don't go the way we want, right? And somebody like, you know, says something or does something that offends you or, or maybe your kids, you track mud through the living room, you know, and it's just like you see it happen and you're like, <coughs> right? And then the next thing, you know, you're like, you just woke up and you're just already upset about that. You've been cleaning and then somebody cuts you off on the way to work and you're like, <coughs> Right? And you're just, this is how you're like walking around like this all day, you know. And then, then uh, one thing after another, and life keeps squeezing and pressuring you, and it's just like, just constantly. Right? And this is how you live. And then somebody looks at you, gives you a bad look, and you're just like, oh, yeah, well. Like a, like a balloon ready to pop. We even kind of find comfort in this balloon, right? Because it's intimidating. I'm angry. I'm, I'm puffed up. Like don't, don't, I'm, I'm signaling, if you test me, if you say one thing to me, I'm going to pop all over you. It's going to be loud. It's going to be impressive. It's going to be crazy. Ego, ego, ego. You see this? You walk around. But in reality, you're just sort of pathetically... This is what happens in reality. It's not impressive. You just pathetically blubber all over the place and people are looking at you like, what, what, are, what are you so mad at? What's going on? Anger manifests again in all kinds of ways. It's not just the posturing. It's not just the intimidating thing. Some people lash out. Some people passively avoid people and then soak in their own bitterness. Some people just use snarky 
comments, and, and we just live in this place which is just eating us up, and we don't even know how it got there. And, and, and sometimes it's towards a person, sometimes it's towards an entire group, sometimes when it really festers, it comes out towards a, a particular type of person, and, and just because they remind you of the person that hurt you or the person you're angry with. It's like suddenly everybody with a yellow shirt must be evil or jerk, right? And so, like, not all anger is sinful. And I want to say this here before we close. Not all anger is sinful. Ephesians 4, 26 tells us to be angry and not sin. The Christian counselor David Powelson puts it like this. The very fact that God gets angry tells us that anger can be utterly right, good, appropriate, beautiful. The only fair response to something evil and the loving response on behalf of evil's victims. Okay, so I want you to hear this. Even Jesus flipped tables over in anger, right? But he didn't live there. That was not his address, okay? And, if, and honestly, like the truth is, is that uh, some, a lot of people justify having an angry spirit because Jesus did it like once or twice. <laughs> he's the sovereign king of the universe. I think he's got enough humility to navigate that thing better than us necessarily, right? And so John Stott even put it like this. He said, so we don't react here. Like not being angry when you should be is often worse than being angry when you shouldn't be. <laughs> so it, there is a passion that we want to navigate. The question is how, what's, what is sinful, what's not? See, it becomes sinful when we refuse to let God be the judge and arbitrator of justice and grace and we take it upon ourselves to do it. And that's when we refuse mercy and we refuse grace and we refuse forgiveness and reconciliation, especially like when it comes to his children, it becomes sinful. So what do we do with those emotions of sinful anger? This is, we're closing with this. The first thing we need to do is lean into being poor in spirit and admit that we are angry about something and we need help from the Holy Spirit to even navigate it. And then you need to ask the Holy Spirit, why am I so angry? Let him ask you. Why are you so angry? Let him take inventory. Walk through it. Take inventory of the why behind the what. What are you really upset about? Like this is often a process and it requires patience, but he has plenty of patience, okay, for you. So be careful not to project your anger onto God. He is very slow to anger and very patient with us. And, and praise God that the verdict of our approval and acceptance comes before the evidence. Amen? This is the gospel. This may be a lifelong journey for some of you. Some of you may have even given up on this journey, and it's time to re-engage. Anger manifests differently. Again, passiveness, bitterness, outright rage. People tend to think this is a sin issue that only applies to men. That is not true. This is for women and men and all of the above. It just looks differently. And so it could be that your anger is just a mask for a different emotion. It could be a cover for anxiety, sadness. Like we often tend to turn to anger as sort of like a mask cover for every emotion we have because it's a way of pushing people out in self-protection, right? That intimidation thing. And that's why it's important, again, to go to the Lord and let him reveal what's actually going on inside of you and let him speak to and heal that place. So how do you do it? One of the ways I think is really helpful is prayer, but even guided prayer, almost like the Psalms. I've given you this resource before. Um, it it, it kind of starts with like just prayerfully writing, God, what am I so angry about? And just telling him, like letting him expose that. Maybe just journaling a paragraph about it. Just write it all out and then go through it and then ask, you know, what's the lie that I'm believing here? What's the lie that I'm believing? Write that out also. What am I afraid of here? What's going on? And then apply the gospel, apply the truth. God, what is true in Christ? What do you say about me and my circumstances? And then finally, don't stop there. Write a paragraph thanking God and asking for his help in the process. So recap, one paragraph, four paragraphs. What's going on? Why am I angry? What's the lie I'm believing? God, what do you say about me and my circumstance? Apply the gospel and then ask for his help in the process and spend time thanking him. This is coming to him both poor in spirit and hungry for his righteousness. He promises to satisfy. Let's pray.